All right. Uh, welcome back to Game Cool Books, and welcome in particular to Kevin Hensler. Hi. Hey, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Excited to be here. Yeah, well, I'm excited to have you. Like we were just talking about a minute ago, um, I found you like uh, back in October, so several months ago now, I was going through some blogs of people who are connected with Signum University, mm -hmm. and you were listed as having given a talk or led a panel at mm -hmm. one of their myth moots on uh, the strange and sophisticated materialist theology of Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials. So that's, I don't know how many years ago now that you, you wrote that paper and, and gave that panel. Um, but maybe just tell us like... Or five, I don't really remember. Where, where did you first meet, uh, come across Philip Pullman or come across Signum University or both? How did that come yeah. about? Okay, so the two the two stories. Uh, I came across Philip Pullman a long time ago. I think I was in early in seventh grade. And like a lot of the book series in my life I read, um, probably embarrassingly so, uh, a girl I kind of had a crush on was reading The Subtle Knife. Uh, and I decided, okay, I, she's, she's reading that book. I'll read that book too. That's uh, very dangerous. About. Yeah, um, and I got like really into it. And then I wanted to read The Golden Compass. And this was before The Amber Spyglass came out. Um, I got really into The Subtle Knife. That was so interesting. And then when I read The Golden Compass, The Golden Compass is just a whole, the, or The Northern Lights, um, it's just a whole new um, experience. It's, I would always say that The Subtle Knife did a lot of really interesting things, but the real heart of Pullman's world building is in The Golden Compass. Mm -hmm. that's, that's where he just, that's where instead of just sort of playing around with, with sort of intellectual ideas, he is just rather just sort of like pulling in all the whimsy. And yes, he's got, sort of didactic goals ultimately but they don't take over in that book they don't really take over until the amber spyglass and when he's just sort of embracing his whimsy and pulling in the like the wonder of this world he's created um and you connect so well with the characters and you experience it through them um it's just incredible and after i read those two and i think i probably read them probably read the subtle knife again after the golden compass i was really excited waiting for the Amber Spyglass to come out, and I was really excited. I pre-ordered that, like, before pre-ordering was a thing, um, and I made sure I got that right away. Um, and that was, you know, at the time, it was a little bit of a letdown, because, uh, first of all, I, was, I felt really awkward reading that book as a Catholic in a way I did not at, when I read The Golden Compass and the Subtle Knife. Mm. <laughs> but I, I definitely enjoyed it, uh, and I still appreciate it. It's still, it's, I think it's still the weakest of those three books. Mm -hmm. And and then you wrote this this paper at some point later on um, as a as a student in college or in your grad program or uh, yeah so I mean I've been a graduate student forever I am um, I'm a graduate student now in religion um, I was at the time a graduate student in Semitic languages and literature um, but I've got a background in theology and I was really interested in Philip Pullman's work as sort of constructing or holding on to a theology, and it really is a theology. And what really interested me is how he's dealing with these spiritual realities uh, of like ghosts and souls, which are taking animal form and, and they're demons, but they, they're, they're definitely mystical in some way. They're supernatural uh, by any standard, and yet he describes them being made of atoms. Yeah. So, so he's pulled the, the supernatural world into nature and he's sort of defining it by nature and um, in the amber spyglass when the ghosts leave and go back to the living world their atoms fly apart and it's just like the, the spirit is nothing else except sort of like almost like vaporous matter uh, and it's 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 really interesting and yet somehow the spirit was there all the time there's a lot there <laughs> well so I think at some point in that third book maybe it's uh, Mary Malone the ex-nun who mm -hmm. says that um, there's a good sort of theological basis for this idea of the uh, body, the soul, and the spirit. Um, I'm not as familiar with that terminology. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with such a formulation, but um, it does seem like there's a kind of uh, coherence between whatever it is that makes up the human being in Pullman's world, and that what he's concerned with is 
the ways in which that coherence can be uh, broken, right? And, and broken apart and um, uh, perverted even, right? So I, I think I, I see what you mean by, by a theology, right? Um, he's kind of wading into those waters. Yeah, it's, it's dealing with like sort of the fundamental nature of all reality in light of, of whatever the deepest reality is. And I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what that is, what, what, what is sort of underlies all existence. Um, it seems like the bad, like the source of um, like the source of, of all sort of self-comprehension, which is sort of like what dust is a manifestation of in Paul's world, is matter recognizing itself, which is almost like, is that just sort of an accident? And once that happens, then things start to have meaning in Pullman's world. Uh, and there's no underlying meaning until that happens. And then once that happens completely by accident, there just is meaning assigned to things. Is this kind of like, almost like an existentialism that's not existentialist like there is true meaning but it doesn't come about until matter comprehends itself by accident i i think that pullman does stand pretty firmly with the idea that there is such a thing as meaning and uh and that it uh it matters you know um in a kind of essential way right like not not a way that is trivial um i yeah, don't but I does not seem to be um, like any type of nihilist. Yeah. He, he rejects Christianity and he rejects sort of like the oppression that is that he perceives religion to be and that religion all too often has been. Um, and yet in a lot of ways, he's got kind of the same sort of underlying meaning in the world that he perceives as someone who is religious rather than someone who is sort of just like a determinist uh, mm -hmm. It's, I mean, it's really interesting, but there's a lot of tension there. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I've been interested in it ever since I first read it. And as I've learned more and I go back to it, I just find the incredible richness and the strangeness of Pullman have clearly having these experiences that to me have been religious and yet sort of re like moving away from religion and seeing religion as the problem. Um, and I try to sort of recategorize how he's thinking about that. Um, for himself since he's not religious because and and it's it's really it's it's fascinating to me and i'm not sure i fully comprehend it no i i certainly am with you on that and uh and i wonder if maybe this would be a good part to kind of transition into a little bit of your your studies of religion more generally um clearly you've uh read quite a bit and studied quite a bit um, so what kinds of things do you study and, and are you specializing in at this point and kind of how did you come to that, to that, uh, track? Um, and, and yeah, does, um, does it sort of shed some light on some of these questions of, uh, ultimate ground of, of reality and, and all that good stuff? Okay. Well, I guess I've always been really interested in ancient things. I, I love the ancient world. I love sort of like looking for origins. And I think that, um, in Pullman's work, like, it's like, it's so deep and you don't ever get to the origins. And I think if you ever really did, if I did, if I found out how everything really worked, I think it might ultimately just be dissatisfying unless it really is sort of infinitely deep. Um, and I, I don't know whether that is the case. Um, but the quest for like searching, going back and back and back, it's so romantic. It's so wonderful. And so that's sort of like the I, I really was interested in classical mythology. I really was interested in the Bible, but primarily, not really the Bible as a religious text, just sort of like the myths in it that point that pull you so far back and how it was written and how this all got together. And I, I really, like I never was uh, like a biblical literalist. I never was a creationist. I never had that, well, I, mean, I guess, depending on what you mean by creationist, I was never a young earth creationist. Um, that was never sort of, in the cards for me. So the Bible always sort of had this, this mythic quality. And that didn't mean that it was fundamentally untrue in any way. In fact, if anything, I still would say that that, that is fundamentally truer in a way that is just sort of different from sort of historical fact. Uh, and the Bible was when I was uh, in like eighth grade, what I decided like I wanted to, you know, do with my life. Um, and that's kind of because I always knew I wanted to be ac an academic probably even before that. Um, maybe because I was into like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, even before I was interested in all of all of that stuff. 
Um, and I just really sort of like wanted to emulate their lifestyles. Uh, like by the time I was in like fifth grade, uh, as, as little as I actually knew about it and as little as I actually knew what the academic life was like, I'm just like, I want to do that. Um, and then the Bible was sort of the area that I sort of honed in on for that. The reason might be that the, I really didn't like my English teachers. Um, I, I mean, that's not my, really the teacher's fault. I didn't really like my English classes, I should say, until much later. Um, Whereas I kind of did my own thing when, when I was like reading the Bible and I was just like, oh, that English stuff, like, like making me read all the Dickens um, and all like the, I don't know, um, all the British lit that's not interesting <laughs> um, to me. Now I've, I've in, in, you know, in my later life, I've definitely gotten more respect for Dickens, but at the time it was not pulling me there, but I could sort of do the, pursue the literary interests I had um, in, in the field of religion. And that's what I did. Uh, I decided I wanted to study um, the Bible and religion. And when I got to college, I did that. The curriculum at my undergrad uh, for that also required lots of studies of world religion. And I, I just love them too. And I absorbed them voraciously. And I've kind of been doing uh, things with that ever since, with the primary focus on the Bible and really the mythology in the Bible, but just so many secondary areas that I just pull in. Um, and love it. And in fact, I like, um, I probably like teaching world religion just as much as I like teaching uh, Hebrew Bible, maybe more, maybe I, maybe, I don't know. Uh, I love them both. Um, I also would love to teach like sort of a theology through literature course at some point in my life. Uh -huh. uh, that would be wonderful. That would be incredible. Uh, I might even pull Pullman in and talk about that. That'd be super cool. I, yeah. I mean, I think that he would be a really interesting, uh, factor in such a course, um, given his avowed um, disdain for certain religious uh, would think know, of it. <laughs> consequences of religion, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, but um, I mean, your, your passion for this stuff is really palpable. Um, and, and Pullman's disgust for religion is equally, you know, clear in, in his um, statements and, and things he says about his work. Um, and so I, I'm curious if that's part of why maybe he doesn't go into as much detail with a kind of origin story, um, a uh, uh, cosmogony for his worlds. And mm -hmm. a lot of things are sort of there, they're maybe mutually reinforcing, but there isn't a clear uh, cause for a lot of it. And maybe he couldn't give one if you if you asked him for one. He might not even know. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think he also. Um, I think there's there's really a lot of tension in his work, and sometimes sometimes it really works well and is really cool, and sometimes it's sort of like a little bit um, sort of the tension is too much and doesn't it kind of tips over. Um, <laughs> I think um, I think when he deals with like. I think he was really enamored by the idea of like God being the first being, but not being like the source of other beings and then deceiving them. And that he sort of did that. He ran with that in the Amber Spyglass. Um, and which, which of course, by my definition would make that being not God, God being sort of another, a, a, an ontologically distinct thing from just sort of another more powerful, more knowledgeable being. Um, yeah, um, so he's enamored by that, and, and so he, he sort of doesn't have a source for existence and a sort of a fundamental ground of meaning. He just sort of has meaning emerge and then be real um, in the form of dust when matter comes to know itself, um, as I said. Um, but I think that one of the reasons for that is that he really wants there to be sort of like a, you know, a cosmological origin that's traced in physics, um, which does not ultimately give that that meaning to the world, um, mm. and which I mean, most theists that I know who are well educated have no problem with at all. They just sort of would say there's something behind that that's even deeper. Um, but I, I guess he, he sort of just wants to have sort of the new atheist cake to sort of be a reductive materialist and not be one at the same time. Mm -hmm. Like. Yeah. like matter is all there is and yet there really is deeper he's like almost like a a platonist who's a reductive materialist it's it's really i don't know I, yeah i don't know i don't know what he would say about that question of the the god behind the authority right the one that might or might not be there i think about that question he'd probably be sort of in the agnostic i'm not sure 
have no way of knowing. He might be he dislikes religion though. Like but, or, yeah, he's very firmly against the the authority, right? The the God who, as he portrays it, always is, refer to God as the authority. Like yeah. like that's that's how God has been known. That's sort of like the defining characteristic of God in Lyra's world, which yeah. is kind of just sort of like a more theocratic version of our world with a few things different. Um, one big difference there is, of course, is the demons. Yeah, right? which is the like biggest difference. Um, yeah, wonderful. But also the uh, the alternate history there. It's a small thing in one of the first chapters they mentioned that John Calvin became the Pope at and a, a the certain point, uh, and that that sort of gave the form to the church as it exists, you know, in Lyra's time period, which is more or less, you know, contemporaneous with ours. Catholic Protestant Reformed Church, um, and Calvin and Calvin, I think he often is misunderstood. Um, I mean, I'm not a Calvinist really at all, but I think that he is a more moderate theologian than his sort of like reading his claims literally would would sort of convey him to be. Uh, and yet, sort of the if you read the words, he is really down on the world, um, and he really does have a theology that lends itself to this idea of the authority, almost like pushing humans down. Um, ultimately almost for no reason, like just to feel good about themselves. Like why is the authority and why are his angels suppressing human knowledge? Um, it's to better control humans, but why better control humans? Ultimately, not for any real reason. Like what do they benefit from that? Just to sort of like, it makes them feel better in their sort of like demented, um, sort of demented desire to like be in charge. And, yeah. One thing that's really interesting though, so I'm teaching Genesis, um, I'm teaching the early chapters of Genesis. One of the themes in the early chapters of Genesis is a God that sounds exactly like that, right? Why does God banish man and woman from the garden? It's not as a punishment. It's to keep them from reaching up to get the fruit of the tree of life um, because they've already eaten from the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And basically, once you have immortality and great knowledge, you are basically the same thing as God. And God doesn't want anyone equal to him. And it's really interesting. And that's why he tears down the Tower of Babel to stop humans from getting to heaven and basically being like God. That's this consistent theme uh, in those early chapters of Genesis. Now, that's a complex text with a complex history, but that's that Pullman didn't make that up. Yeah. Um, he just sort of like made that the whole picture when there's a lot more going on. Well, he doesn't do much with yeah. A lot of what's in the Bible, um, but uh, particularly the New Testament is is kind of left out. Uh, but oh, I don't know if he mentions Jesus at all. Yeah. And the, uh, the thing I was going to say about uh, Calvin, the thing that most people know about him, if they know things about him, is that he was uh, big on predestination. Right? Yeah, double predestination, yeah. So, so. so this is something I think that is another tension, no matter what you... Uh, believe, you know, this this problem of free will and uh, determinism or providence, whatever sort of place you fall on that spectrum. Uh, anyway, there's going to be tension there, right? And, um, and in Pullman's work, he does something really interesting where he acknowledges it quite um, explicitly up front, having people discuss the uh, sort of great importance of Lyra's uh, choices mm -hmm. within a framework of a great sort of destiny or prophecy surrounding her. Um, we hear it first from the master of Jordan because he's got some knowledge from the alethiometer. And then we hear it later from the witch consul, Dr. Lancelius. And he speaks of how the witches hear whispers from other worlds um, through the aurora, right? When, where the matter is thin. Uh, this, this element of, of prophecy and free choice along with, you know, your point about like the bad guy who wants control, those mm -hmm. both sound really similar to no one so much as Tolkien, right? Like that, that sounds like quite comparable actually. Um, and I know you've studied Tolkien quite a bit, you mentioned. Uh, so what, what do you make of that uh, ball of wax? Oh yeah. Um, well, that's, that sort of is like Pullman is making of God what Pullman would make of his devil figure, um, someone who's obsessed with control almost for its own end to ultimately no benefit to him. Uh, and that's sort of what the, what God, what, what the authority, that's the role of the authority is playing. Um, 
for Pullman. And it's kind of like, I've decided that I'm against religion, um, but I'm still going to ultimately come down exactly where um, other scholars that are similar to me are about like what's good and what's evil. I'm just sort of going to sort of flip who's what. Um, it, but yeah, there, there's a there's an exact parallel there. The authority is just like Morgoth, um, except that there's no uh, there's no Iluvatar who is behind the scenes that is sort of like the source of all everything, um, who is sort of the ultimate master um, controller. Um, who is not sort of pursuing his power, but sort of just like his power is a reality um, behind everything. Um, who, and also sort of a Luvatar fundamentally gives everyone free will. It's just sort of like your free will is absolutely free, but there's nothing you can do to, to change things so that they're not like ultimately what God wants. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe that's oppressive. Maybe Pullman would read that as oppressive, but it's certainly not the way he depicts the authority. See, I just don't think Pullman has read Tolkien all that carefully, is the sense I get um, that he, like his, his... Must have read Tolkien, yeah. Yeah, I think that he's read, you know, or enough uh, to decide that he has some problems with, yeah, those kind of markers that you, that you point out, right? Um, I, I guess... There's also a big difference between the two with respect to um, their approach to fantasy. Um, yeah. Something that he, again, is very vocal about, uh, that he wants to be read as, as a writer who um, is concerned with real uh, people, you know, not um, invented people. But as you said, you know, part of what <laughs> makes the story so compelling is this invented world with yeah. witches, bears, uh, demons, you know. And to uh, people, yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of interesting tensions there, but I just want to come back to the, the prophecy one. Um, what, what kinds of thoughts do you have about the role of prophecy uh, in these kinds of, of stories and, and maybe in particular with respect to um, Lyra and her, her journey, her, her, her quest here? Yeah, so prophecy is really interesting, and especially for Lyra. Um, they really, one of the big things they emphasize, uh, and Dr. Lancilius says it in, in the chapter in Trolls and in the Council there, um, how, she, how she is destined, she has this destiny, and yet it's not like the destiny is inevitably going to be fulfilled. In fact, it can only be fulfilled if she's free to make her own mistakes. If she is, if people guide her too much, it sounds like it will fail right? It sounds like she's not going to succeed if she gets too much guidance. Um, and yet, if she doesn't get enough guidance, uh, or if she doesn't get guidance, she'll probably fail also. So it's sort of this near thing. That's, it's, it's almost like the prophecy itself is pointing to a potentiality that only she has, but there's, no, there's nothing guaranteed in it, um, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so too. Yeah, that there's, there's a very interesting kind of space between her getting no guidance, right? Following any whim, you know, getting uh, captured, captivated by yeah. Mrs. Coulter, by uh, the scientists at Bolvanger, as happens, right? And uh, she does need help from time to time. But on the other hand, right, not um, telling her directly, you have this great destiny, you must take the ring and destroy it or, you know, yeah. whatever. The, right? And I know that's not exactly how it goes in the Lord of the Rings, but, but it's, it's much clearer. I think there um, that something is operating like that. Um, and there's yeah. clearly like beings working behind the scene to try and sort of like make this all work out. And there's obviously beings uh, more overtly operating against it. Um, but, but what is the ultimate destiny? Like it's almost, we find out is sort of the whole sort of climax of the third book is almost like an anti-climax because it doesn't matter because like it's after all like the big deal happens that like Lyra and Will apparently save the world uh, <laughs> just like by falling in love with each other and um, you know consummating that love I suppose um, which is which is really interesting because I mean it also says something 
why is their love particularly special? Does that mean that they felt their love much more deeply than other people do? Uh, or was sort of there a dearth of actual love being experienced or something? That, um, I, I, I mean, people fall in love, feel like it's they're like the main characters of the world all the time. Uh, and why why were Lyra and Will special? I, I don't think we ever learned why Lyra and Will special, were special. Obviously, they're incredibly powerful personalities. Obviously, they, uh, they would ultimately grow up to be larger-than-life figures, it seems. Um, they've got sort of every bit as much will as, as Lyra's parents did. Um, and, but, but is that just it, that there are significant people who did this? Why, why is this like sort of the retelling of the, uh, of the Adam and Eve story? Why is this the fall again, but good? What's special about Lyra that she was susceptible to this in a way that no, like no one else by doing the exact same thing Lyra did would have saved the world, would have brought the dust back. Um, so why, what is it? I, I still don't think I know. And I'm not sure I, before this conversation, I ever even thought about it. It's like, like yeah. It's a real, that, that is a real question. And again, I think Pullman has this kind of problem with the idea that there's a, a chosen one. Yeah. Um, you know, like the Harry Potter or the Jesus Christ for that matter, right? Whereas he also does sort of present us with what looks an awful lot like that, um, that there is something special, different, unique about this particular experience, which is nevertheless a universal human experience, right? Um, that, I don't know what the mechanism per se would be exactly, but I suspect that it has to do again with the process of the human and demons connection and with dust and how those two things are related here. Um, I don't know because there's something really interesting about Will and Lyra in that they've both gone through this process of voluntarily separating from their demon. Yeah. They've then passed through the world of the dead, come out the other side and not dispersed and, and done this together. And they are, you know, like witches in that they've done that separation process, but mm -hmm. unlike witches in that they are male and female, right? So normally witches take mortal, like normal non-separated people as their lovers. And so there's, there does seem to be like within the sort of plot mechanisms and things of the world or physics of the world, there does seem to be something that is kind of different. Uh, are, about this. Both from worlds that are basically, they're two, be two people from different worlds. Oh yeah. Ship in a third world in a way that could never be fully realized. Yeah. Um, they're passing through the dead uh, or the land of the dead um, and sort of voluntarily separating themselves from the demon. So there, there are ways, there are ways that they're very different, but I don't know what the causal relationship could be. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think that we do ultimately come back to that sort of, like you said, a whimsical, a romantic um, theme or sort of emotion that's evoked there rather than a hard and fast, uh, like, mathematical kind of um, a reason for this. Uh, I think that as you described, the, the third book, a lot of readers find it um, more didactic in some ways, more, um, more difficult, or those, those times when you're sort of jarred out of following the story happen more frequently and, and more um, powerfully in that book. That's definitely true. Yeah, and and, there's a lot of other stuff that's drawing about that book. Time doesn't make sense in that book. Time and distance don't make any sense. You try to figure it out and really nothing makes any sense at all. How, how far people have to travel, where they go, where they end up. Yeah, there's a lot of things in that book that really don't make, I mean, there's a kind of a throwaway line in the second book where Ruta Scotti says to Seraphina Pecola that Lord Asriel must be able to sort of command time and like <laughs> faster and slower, which is kind of like the only explanation for what we see. Because yeah. it really is absurd the way time works, the way like, I think Will crosses the entire continent of Asia in like a few days. Yeah. Um, on foot going after Lyra, who somehow has already been there for months, which is right. like, what? I've seen. Right. So there, yeah, those, those are 
more or less insurmountable when you look at them in the cold light of day. Yeah. I, mean, I think that, again, like what he's going for and what he accomplishes, to me at least, I, I love that book still, even though I see the, the issues with it. And uh, I'm interested in sort of trying to work through them as much as possible. But what he accomplishes is still like the culmination of this incredible story, right? Oh, it's monumental, yeah. And And that ultimately is the thing that, again, I think unites him really closely with his forebears, Lewis and Tolkien, whom he in other ways wants to distinct, distinguish himself from in, uh, in lots of sort of ideological ways. Um, they all three, you know, tell incredible stories. That's what first sort of grabs you. I would definitely say that his Dark Materials is one of the great works of um, the 20th century of sort of like English fantasy literature. Yeah, yeah. And... And I, I wonder, again, like, to go back to the myth question, um, I feel like the myths are that way, too. In, in a strange way, they are primarily, like, really good stories, right? And it's only later and with more sophistication that you sort of go and, and try to work out, like, so how does this actually map onto reality or how is it internally coherent with itself? And, you know, what does this mean for um, ultimate you know, purposes and how can we use this to control people if that's what we want to do? <laughs> how can we use this to free ourselves if that's what we want to do? You know, so all of that stuff still sort of is grafted onto or maybe implicit in these these great stories. Um, I, I don't know to what extent Pullman is maybe saying something about that very process. And this is I don't, I don't know quite where to go with this thought, but, but it seems to me that he really wants to hold the story up as the primary thing and all of the ideological and other sorts of accoutrements that get, up, get put on there, have those kind of be dismissible to, as much as possible. And he does, he does a really good job with that in the first two books, and especially the first book. Yeah. Uh, although, I mean, you could, if you're reading it looking for anti-religion stuff, you can find it easily, but it doesn't take over the story. And, and, and in some ways it does sometimes in the third book. Um, I'm also, there, there, there are other problems with that third book too, but yeah. Um, yeah, and what we, you're talking about myth, and myth is one of those really hard things to define. And in fact, that kind of when I was doing a graduate school interview once uh, for uh, a spot in a kind of elite doctoral program, I kind of like got tripped up. Like, you say you're interested in studying myth. What is myth? And I'm like, oh my god! Like, what do I even say? Right? Um, I, I know, like, <laughs> I know what it is when I see it. Right. <laughs> And Pullman is sort of creating underlying myths, but yet I'm not sure if his story is myth. Um, there's, I guess there's myth behind it that he doesn't fully work out. And certainly these are the kinds of stories that could become mythic for future generations. Um, it's kind of interesting because every myth, if, if you're going to sort of think about it inside the story, would be less mythic to the people in the story, I guess, right? I, I don't know. It's yeah, like you said, there's there's some explicit references to particular real-world myths, like the biblical story of Genesis, the I, specifically like the Adam and Eve and the idea of Lyra as another Eve, right? Yeah. Which is not without precedent, right? That's That's a traditional kind of conception within certain threads of Christianity too, right? That there is this second Adam and he has, you know, sort of undone the uh the the death and sin that entered the world with the fall right so all of that is like wrapped up in there and so that's what makes it particularly difficult to accept maybe that um we're supposed to just enjoy the story right um so th again a, a major tension there <laughs> yeah but i mean it's it's so awesome and i'm really excited about like his his further writings in this world yeah. i really liked um what, what is the first one in the Book of Dust, La Belle Sauvage. I don't know uh -huh. when the second one's coming out or if it has already come out. Um, I, I just, again, there's things he did there that, that are kind of like, I'm not quite sure how they're working and the world's complicated. And I think he's, he's kind of like uh, more like C.S. Lewis than like Tolkien here in that like, I'm not sure everything does ultimately hold together. Yeah. Uh, all the different mystical things he's pulling in, but it definitely is really interesting. Like, yeah. The, the Belle Sauvage um, incorporates the, um, 
the, the relationship between Lyra and um, her father in a really interesting way there. And that's one of the things in terms of like um, feeling jarred by the story, I think, you know, when Asriel suddenly becomes this like sac self-sacrificial figure um, towards the end, like that's one of the hardest things to kind of swallow in a way, but, but maybe that's seeing him, yeah, but, <laughs> but maybe seeing him, you know, holding Lyra, um, having to be separated from her, you know, all of that, um, maybe that helps a little bit, you know, he's in this way kind of expanding the story, adding layers to and smoothing out maybe things that were, you know, a little bit rushed or, or unpolished about the final book or the third book, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm very curious to see where he goes with the whole um, fairy commonwealth idea, right? This like other sort of other world. Um, is that sort of like a parallel world in the same world? <laughs> like a different world, like that is parallel? Yeah. Right, <laughs> like, like, is fairy sort of like a sub world to the same main world as Lyra's world, but not like, like you wouldn't reach the fairy world with a subtle knife, right? You would get there some other, like I, yeah. I don't know, or or would you? See, I think, and I think this goes along too with his his little books that he's released since he's released a little red book and a little uh, blue book, and then he's mm -hmm. got the story of the collectors, which is like an audio only. You know, he's very savvy about like marketing and selling books right and he's very open about that too but but um, in these books he has these like little bits and pieces from the other worlds that have somehow like passed through windows and 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 i feel like that is something that he is not just not just using as like a cute device but i think he's also really interested in in how stories are told of course right and and this element of of fairy is is so um kind of intimately tied up with storytelling right yeah um consciousness and and how it's passed on and how it grows is so intimately tied up with storytelling that dreamlike right and a lot yeah. less and, and i mean it, it's also a lot more like so when I, I study myths and i kind of hold them to a different standard than i hold like modern literature because i guess i don't expect all the answers and i sort of get mad when i read like something written today that like leaves me so like like this author didn't have this figured out. But it's the, the real thing is like, in, when you're dealing with these mystical issues that humans don't really comprehend, no one has it figured out. And it's probably better to leave it unfigured out. Um, that's, that's where you get the depth. That's where you get the whimsy. That's why um, Pullman leaves you with just that, that deep romance when you read him or, or why Tolkien does. Mm -hmm. Because he doesn't lay it out like it's all understood. Um, yeah. Not by humans. Like the 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 elves don't understand the Valar, and humans don't understand elves, right? And sometimes when you tell tell it from the perspective of elves, it kind of seems completely normal. And yet, uh, if a human was experiencing any of that, it would totally be all. I mean, I don't know. There's there's a lot there, and that's what Pullman is doing. He's really doing that with uh, the new Book of Dust. And I'm not sure how far he's going to go with that. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's it's a matter too of sort of deciding since we're not elves, we don't have eternal life a matter too of deciding like which stories to tell seems to be something he's probably kind of running up against here as he's like trying to finish telling as many of these stories as he can. He yeah. can only sort of fill in so much and, and he has to leave certain things unexplained, possibly even unthought about, unconsidered. And, yeah. uh, and, and that that, you know, as you say, contributes a quality of reality to it um, as mm -hmm. well. And well, all right. So as we're kind of wrapping this up, um, mm -hmm. what would you what would you most like to see explored uh, in these next couple of books that he's working on? Repu reportedly uh, finished the second one, and I think working on or almost done with the third already. What would you like to see um, told in those stories? Oh my gosh, um, I don't know that I can ask for any sort of like particular clarification. I guess sort of um, there, there's that strange episode early on in the in the Golden Compass where Lyra um, sort of steals those coins, the demon coins uh, mm -hmm. that are with the skulls, and then she like has the night gas, and it seems like there's a real like real ghosts there that are like asking her like it's it's almost like not just a nightmare. Um, maybe 
digging more into that, digging more into sort of like, you know, the the parts of the dead that are not in that world of the dead. Um, mm-hmm. There seems to be like some spooky stuff in that world. Um, we got an answer for specters, but we certainly didn't get an answer for everything, right? Um, there, there's all sorts of, of supernatural stuff that's going on. And it's, it's funny because in Lyra's world, it's like at least some of that seems to be commonplace, right? Like the, um, the, the like mechan- the clockwork bugs in that that are get trapped in the tin that are like yeah. soul trying to escape or something like what's that? Um, <laughs> oh yeah, it's from some exotic part of the world, so you like we don't really have to explain it. But yeah, Mrs. Coulter has that. Like I would, I mean, I'm not sure that any explanation that he could give us would be satisfying. Um, but maybe like something that's just sort of like gives us just a hint of it just to like satisfy something and we can speculate more about it. Just all those things. Sort of, I guess the supernatural, it doesn't quite fit uh, and is kind of treated as like, oh yeah, that's, that's a thing in this world. Um, right. Exploring more of that uh, would be really good. And um, I'm not sure in La Belle Sauvage, we went really deep in the fairy world uh, and in a way that maybe almost went too far because i'm just like how does that even make sense and yet it's so much like a real fairy tale um uh, so like it's wonderful and it's also i mean there's there's other fairy stuff too i mean i guess there's a lot of fairy stuff there's and there's also sort of like oh never mind I, yeah th- that's supernatural stuff i can't i can't just talk forever because i don't even know what i want um, <laughs> I, want the, I want the depth i want the romance i yeah. want to feel like i want to be pulled into the world just yeah. the for it that's what i want more than anything else i yes a, a really good story that gives you that experience of yeah um being carried away and uh having this kind of um novelty right uh, of experience as well mm-hmm. yeah, i and i think a big part of that for me would be seeing more of those corners of the world sketched in things like we're told about uh journeys to southern wilds and exotic places in Africa or the Far East, you know, more of that would be, would be sure, If you could capture the romance of those, like capture the romance of the North. Yeah. Of North. Could there be like an idea of Africa or something? <laughs> so interesting, right? Like, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, it's it, like, it's that that's kind of dangerous and kind of like sounding colonialist or something, but like, I mean, it, it also could be really romantic in an amazing way. And I, I don't know. There's well, that's okay. The final weird spooky resemblance between Pullman and Tolkien, both of their fathers uh, die in Africa. Yeah. Um, and so they're both, they both have that sort of experience of, um, you know, this, this childhood figure who they you know look up to maybe uh taken from them you know at a young age um and there is a lot of of pullman's uh upbringing that involves him traveling you know from one part of the world to another so i think it yeah it'd be really interesting to see how that would pass through the filter of his his storytelling yeah absolutely yeah all right well hey Thanks again. Uh, I will let you go, Kevin. Um, I really appreciate you joining me and talking some of this through. I'd never thought of a lot of this stuff until you brought it up. And, uh, conversation, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, best of luck with all your studies and classes and everything. And I'll, uh, I'll hopefully see you around Signum and other places. Absolutely. Well, it's great to meet you. And yeah, thank you very much. Okay. Thanks again, Kevin Hensler, working on his PhD at Temple University. I always love talking to scholars and have had some interesting conversations lately on the Alexander Schmid podcast with a number of anime scholars and practitioners and theorists of RPGs, role-playing games, whether tabletop or computer-based. So if you like these kinds of interviews, conversations, go check those out at the Alexander Schmid podcast. The rest of this little segment here devote to some news and updates. Aside from that one I just gave you, I'll uh, be posting some more on my blog soon, uh, reviews and reflections on some of these literary criticism and academic 
papers. Uh, I mentioned I've been reading through his Dark Materials Illuminated, edited by uh, Millicent Lenz, Carol Scott. I've also been reading Verlin Flieger's Splintered Light and Toni Morrison's Playing in the Dark. Uh, those are just the first ones at the top of my stack that I've been trying to get to. Again, I would really recommend checking out the writing and speeches and things Pullman has given about his own work. The same goes for Tolkien, has a couple of critical essays, uh, one called um, Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics, the other uh, on fairy stories, which are essential reading. Um, throw into that mix Owen Barfield's um, Poetic Diction and Saving the Appearances. I've read the latter, have not yet read the former, but hope to soon. And uh, Francis Yates' work on the Renaissance and the occult tradition. Uh, very, very keen on getting a couple of books of, uh, of hers from Interlibrary Loan sometime soon. So I'll be posting those reviews on the blog, newschoolnotes.blogspot.com. I hope you check them out. Uh, I've also been working slowly on getting started with Signum Academy, which has been doing summer camps over the past couple of years and will soon be offering more uh, open-ended and sort of modular uh, course content for precocious students of all ages. I hope that you check that out, Signum Academy. You can find it through Signum University's website. And uh, in context of outer, out of school uh, learning, there is a website called OutSchool where you can find a side project that I've been working on with Alex and Sarah called Night School, where uh, right now we're offering a couple of classes on Tolkien's works, first the Two Towers, and then the Silmarillion, starting in about a month here. Um, so please, if you're interested in taking a course on the Silmarillion or know someone who might like that, check that out on OutSchool, the Night School profile. Uh, well, to finish up this week's second episode, um, thanks again for all your listens and uh, for sticking with this project. I uh, have got some short songs for you. First is Jerry. The next comes Trollicend. Then we have the Council. Then the Bear. The Witches. And finally, Where's Your Balloon? I hope you enjoy. <laughs>